Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys. Well, welcome back to the Equipping and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for the show. And today, I get to welcome Natasha to the podcast. Natasha, welcome to Equipping and Grace. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your your life, your marriage, ministry, and you know any exciting maybe book projects or ministry projects that you're excited? Sure. Well, I've been married for 22 years. My husband and I have three kids. We have boy-girl twins who are 13, and I'm currently homeschooling them, as well as a um, a 10-year-old girl. I had to think about that for a second. Uh, and so we, like I said, we, we homeschool the two kids and we live in Southern California. And my husband is the chief operating officer of the Orange County Rescue Mission. So he works in homeless services, which is an exciting job to have. And I'm the author of four books. I've written three apologetics books specifically for parents. And uh, my newest book is called Faithfully Different. And that is for a broader Christian audience. And I know we're going to talk a lot about that today, so I won't go into detail about that. But I love to write. Uh, I speak. And I also have a podcast called the Natasha Crane Podcast. I'm a newer podcaster, unlike you. And I and I learned in talking to you before we started this that you've been podcasting for many years from before I even knew what a podcast was. So I feel like a little bit of a baby podcaster compared to that. I think I have 16 episodes, but uh, it's getting off the ground and I am excited about that. Well, it's great. Everybody's got to start somewhere. And so you're definitely going. And uh, I know that uh, no doubt a lot of people will listen and benefit from that. So praise the Lord for that. Um, well, can you tell us uh, about your, your book, Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture, why you wrote it? And, you know, obviously it's out, but you know, how do you, how is it being received? How do you hope it will be received? Those types of things. Sure. So for the last several years, really for the last decade, I was really focused on writing and speaking, like I said, specifically for parents to help equip them to make a case for and defend the truth of Christianity so they could pass that knowledge on to their kids. But in 2020, during all the social unrest that was going on, everything that was happening, I started to be become just really troubled by seeing how many secular ideas about justice were creeping into the worldviews of a lot of Christians. And even though I had been so focused on apologetics for parents in the past, I decided, you know what, I'm just going to write something that's not about apologetics for parents. I'm going to write a blog post called Five Ways That Christians Are Getting Swept Into a Secular Worldview in this cultural moment. And that blog post went viral. It was liked and shared over 277,000 times. It just went crazy. And I was receiving emails and comments on social media for weeks where people were saying, thank you for writing this. It really helped me to put my finger on what's not quite right today with the response of a lot of Christians to what is going on. And so that was an encouragement to me to then write more articles along the same lines of really just contrasting a biblical worldview with a secular worldview. And all of those posts just went viral, each and every one of them. And so 
I started to realize this is really something resonating with people that Christians are looking for help in teasing out these ideas and really understanding clearly the difference between biblical worldview and a secular one. And so that really led to me writing faithfully different. And it's all in the subtitle there. It's regaining biblical clarity in a secular culture. And I walk Christians through basically all the types of pressures, or at least the major pressures that we have today that are kind of making us become more of an extension of secular culture rather than a distinct light to it. And so that's, the book has been received really well so far. I've had so many encouraging comments from people saying it's been very helpful in that clarification. So as to how I hope it's received, I do hope it's received as a wake-up call. I hope that people read it, they gain clarity, just as the title um, purports to, to help with. And I hope that it will make people say, I need to take this seriously, that there are a lot of pressures today. We are in a worldview minority. We're going to need to do something. Yeah, that's that's really, really good. And guys, uh, the book here, if you can see it, if you're watching video, the video, here it is, uh, Faithfully Different. Hopefully that's close enough. I'll, I'll try again. Uh, somebody asked me, would you post the share the you know, book on the video just so that I can see it, what it looks like. So I sometimes forget, but no, I, I think the book is like you said, it's, it's really good. We are, uh, I mean, the statistics on, um, you know, biblical literacy are alarming, but the, I think the statistics that you share in your book and, and the statistics on biblical worldview are even more concerning and, um, telling. So it's not surprising that, you know, those, those articles, and then, you know, this book is, has been doing so well because we, we, <laughs> the average Christian, the pew is getting massacred. They, they need, they need help. Um, and this is even before COVID I've, I've seen it, um, doing local church ministry and ministry online for a long time. And they, even, even just before all these issues came up, like, you know, CRT intersectionality, so on and so forth, you talked about justice I mean, it's, they're just getting, they, they don't have good resources. We're not, we're not helping people in, in the way I think that we should. Um, and so resources like what you're writing and sharing about are, are absolutely needed. So I just want to say thank you for writing it. And it's, it's a really good book. You, you mentioned the justice thing. You want to, you want to talk about that just a little bit about what you share in the book on that? Yeah. So that's just, even though that was sort of the catalyst for me writing about these issues, that's not really the subject of the whole book, just so people understand that it is one specific chapter in the book. Uh, But what I talk about in that is that secular social justice ideas are fundamentally at odds with the idea of justice from a biblical perspective. And secular social justice ideas tend to be rooted in what's called critical theory, big buzzword that you hear lots of people talking about. But sometimes people get confused between when they hear critical race theory and they hear critical theory and these words all just kind of float around out there. But critical theory is a whole family of different social justice types of ideas that have the commonality of being rooted in this idea that there are basically two groups in the world, two identity groups. There are oppressors and there are the oppressed. And people who are oppressed are oppressed by people who are in power and they are empowered by social structures. And so the norms of society, the traditions of society, everything that's always been in place is therefore in this view to blame for any kind of perceived or actual injustice or oppression 
oppression in society. And so that's a very, very brief overview of it, but it manifests itself in different ways. You've got uh, feminist critical theory, for example, looking at how women are oppressed. You have queer theory, which is looking at how LGBTQ people are oppressed. You've got critical race theory, looking at how people of different races are oppressed. So all those similar ideas work themselves through these different families of oppression. But in the book, what I look at is, okay, this is a really complex subject and you can talk a whole lot about it, but it boils down to three questions. And if you ask these three questions and you answer them from both a biblical perspective and a secular social justice perspective, you'll quickly see the differences. And those three questions are one, what is what is the reason why we are where we are? So what's the root of the problem? How do you diagnose the problem? Number two, how should things ultimately be? So where are we trying to get to? And number three, what's the best way to get from point A to point B? And we're going to differ on our answers to those questions at every point with those who hold to secular social justice theories. Mm. So that's that's all covered off in the book, but that's just kind of an overview of the framework through which I'm looking at it to help Christians understand there's this relationship, this family of ideas that go beyond just critical race theory, which you hear the most about, and they just work their way through all of society right now. Yeah, I think uh, I really like that because when, when you when you talk about this, it's often thought, well, then you're against uh, speaking. Like I, I, I talk about this a lot within, within a certain context, but the then you're often said, well, you're 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 the you're the R word. You're you're a racist because you you are against equality for so on and so forth. And we know that's a mischaracterization because any Christian is concerned in a because of the category of biblical, uh, biblical justice, you know, we're concerned for all people. Everybody is made in the image of God. And so we're not unconcerned about sex trafficking and abortion. We're just concerned about it because God is just. And I think that I, I really, I like what you're saying. I, I also really appreciate, you know, what Bodhi Bakum has written on this subject. Um, and I, I think I, I probably, I, I would probably go in that route, what realm um, for myself, because, we have to we have to be careful how we frame it too. I'm not saying you don't frame it rightly at all. I'm just saying like there's people that don't frame it right, and then people hear the wrong thing, and so we just have to be really careful. As I know you appreciate as well, um, you know that. And I think when we do that, we'll, we'll people have other questions, but they won't have that question if they're if they're listening. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, people do think, well, if you don't buy into this exact way of looking at the question of racism, for example, or homosexuality or feminism or whatever the question is, if you don't look at it that way, then you don't care or that you're against it. And I think that you're right that people can hear the wrong thing if we don't approach the question in some very nuanced and careful ways. And I do think that the way to approach that is to say, I'm absolutely concerned about fill in the blank issue, because from a biblical worldview perspective, God has made all of us in his image. We are all inherently equal and valuable because of that. Of course, I have a heart for all people, but I do diagnose the problems that we see and the oppression or marginalization that we're encountering as the terminology goes. I do see that 
as having its root problem differently than as diagnosed by these critical social justice theories. And because of that, I have a different idea about where society should go in response. So it's kind of a different way of framing that rather than just, no, 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 you know, this is a problem and, you know, oh, Black Lives Matter, that's all wrong. Well, we might agree that there are lots of problems with it, but if you start a conversation that way, it's probably (laughs) not going to go well. Yeah, yeah, we we do have to work um, a lot as Christians in in like you're saying and like I'm saying in how we communicate the message that we do so that you know it's it's heard in the right way. You know, we learn this <laughs> in any kind of speech and community interpersonal communication class. It's it's not just about what you want to say; it's about also how it's how it's received. So, it's, it's I think these are really good things that what both of us are saying here. You know, you you talked in the in the opening there about the book about you know the the minority that that we as Christians are. Can you uh, explain a little bit of the research that went into this and those kind of things? Yeah. So in terms of religious trends in America, this gets talked about a lot and numbers fly out there, but it's really important to understand what those numbers represent. So let me give you a couple of big numbers that Christians should understand about our numerical status today. The first one is how many people in America say they're Christian. And so this data comes from an organization called the Pew Forum. They're very well known for tracking religious trends in America. They do something called the Religious Landscape Study. And this is a very large, wide-scale survey of people where they're just trying to assess based on a single question how people identify themselves. So if you call somebody up and you give them a list of things, are you atheist, agnostic, Jewish, Mormon, Christian, uh, Muslim, whatever the case is, how do people answer that question? And when you ask them that question, 65% of Americans say, I'm a Christian. So that's a lot. That's a big number, right? So sometimes people hear that kind of number and they think, well, Christians aren't a minority. That's ridiculous. Like two thirds of people are Christians almost. So in a sense, Christians are a majority in terms of how people identify themselves. But we have to remember that that's exactly what this research is saying is how do people identify themselves? It has nothing to do with what they actually believe or how they live their lives. It's just a label someone would place on themselves. And I'm sure most of us as Christians who are actually committed Christ followers, we look around, we don't feel that almost two thirds of people are passionate Christ followers. We certainly do not feel that that's where the culture is. And the reason for that is that, well, it's not. So when you look then into other research, and this research comes from Arizona Christian University's Cultural Research Center with Dr. George Barna, when you look at their research where they're not asking people, what do you call yourself, but rather giving them a whole battery of questions, dozens of questions to see what they believe and how they live. And then the researchers themselves categorize, okay, well, this group of people, they hold to the core truths as taught in the Bible, basic things like the sovereignty of God, the existence of absolute truth, uh, the reality of the devil and of heaven and hell, these basic things is taught in the Bible. When you actually go directly to beliefs of people like this, what they estimate is that about 6% of Americans have what we would call a functioning biblical worldview. 
In other words, they see reality through the truths as taught in the Bible and they seek to live accordingly. So there's this huge gap between 65% of people saying I'm a Christian and 6% who actually have a functioning biblical worldview. And it's that gap when you look at that, that explains so much in success in society. It makes a lot more sense to a lot of us to say 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview than a 65% number. So yes, we are in terms of a worldview, we are a minority. Minority. We are a small minority. We're also a shrinking minority. Those numbers were double 25 years ago. The percent of people with a biblical worldview that was double 25 years ago. And furthermore, between 18 and 29, that group, it's 2% with a biblical worldview. So these numbers are very, very low. I'll throw one more number out there in the church, in evangelical churches, 21% have a biblical worldview. So this should really, it it explains a lot, but it should also kind of blow our minds in a way to think that, gosh, even in an evangelical church on an average basis, and sure, that's going to differ with any individual congregation, but on average, four out of five people don't have a biblical worldview within evangelical churches. Hmm. That, That really says a lot. And it has a lot of implications for us as Christians. Yeah. If you want to take it further, uh, somebody could go look at the state of theology put out by you know, uh, Ligonier and Lifeway Research. And then it goes into even more detail about people's various views about, I mean, we're talking about the fundamentals of the faith. Like, is Jesus God? Is is salvation only uh, through Jesus alone? And is the Bible true and reliable and trustworthy and so on and so forth? And man, I just read those stats and it's just, it to somebody that I do pulpit supply and uh, you know, those kind of things it just breaks my heart. It's like, so the people basically that I'm preaching to or whatever that, that listen to this podcast, they don't, they don't even know the basics. It's just, uh, I, I've, I, even before I've seen the statistics, I've seen it like in the local church and it breaks my, it really breaks my heart. You have, when I, when I did, used to do men's ministry, I had a guy, he was in his sixties and we were working just through books of the Bible and, you know, we would stress the context, proper biblical interpretation, so on and so forth. And then we came to the, to the end of the section and he was paying attention, but he just didn't get it. And he was in, he was going to church every Sunday. He was your, he was going to Bible study fellowship. He was in my Bible study. He was in another small group. So he was not your typical average Christian. And then you put a, an average Christian who's maybe going to a small group and most likely going every Sunday, we'll say. And I'm just thinking, wow, that that blew my mind. Um, it still really concerns me. Um, like you're like you're saying, it's we, we got to We got to put out resources. We got to help the, the person. And then then you overlay all that. I do sometimes overlay that with like top Christian books and that are published out there. And I'm just like. Whoa, man, we got to We got to do a better job here. Like we got to have some urgency, you know, we got to have some passion here. And I'm just like, it, it gets me, it gets me going. Like, I'm like, I'm ready. Let's go. You know, like I got, I got the urgency and uh, it breaks my heart and saddens me, but also makes me realize, you know, we have something really, really important and very valuable to say. And we all have a job to do. It's not just your pastor. It's not just it's all of us. Every single one of us has, no matter no matter if you have an audience or not, all of us have uh, a very important job to do. 
it's going to take all of us. That is so true. And I think, you know, you mentioned Christian quote unquote titles of books and things like that. I think Christians have to understand that that gap between 65% and 6%, that isn't just a, a research figure. You're going to actually experience the gap in every area where someone calls themselves a Christian. So whether you're talking about a pastor or you're talking about a church or you're talking about a Christian band or you're talking about an author, wherever you go, you have to be discerning because just because you see the label Christian doesn't tell you what they actually believe. And unfortunately, if you look at that difference between 65 and 6%, most people, most, the majority who say they're Christian won't actually have views that line up with what the Bible teaches. So we have to be very much on our toes and aware of this. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who don't realize that this is kind of the state of Christianity in America, and they can be easily influenced by people on social media who are Christian leaders, quote unquote. And, you know, like I said, and, and bands and authors, and you just have to be very discerning when you hear the word Christian, which is an unfortunate fact. It's, it's not the same as what the word originally meant, where the people who followed Jesus and were disciples of Jesus were the first Christians, right? It, we can't take that for granted anymore. Mm. Well said. Why is a secular worldview so compelling to people, even to Christians today? Well, I talk a lot about this in the book, actually. And to answer that, I think we have to start with what exactly is a secular worldview? What is secularism? And what I talk about in the book is that when you look at what's around us, so if we say, okay, 6% have a biblical worldview. So what does everybody else believe? What is out there? Uh, what the same researchers at Arizona Christian University have found is that 88% of people have a, a worldview that they call syncretism, which is that they're just pulling ideas from all kinds of different worldview boxes, even though they don't logically fit together. They're not coherent. They don't, these, these worldview pieces do not work when you put them together. It's sort of like saying, I believe in reincarnation and the Bible. Well, you can't believe in both of those. They don't logically fit together because the Bible clearly teaches is that you have one life to live and then you are judged. So those would be two worldview pieces that don't go together. 88% of people are holding worldview pieces like that from different worldview puzzles, I like to think of them as, and they're just trying to hold on to them even though they don't work. So when we look at it that way, we might think, well, how can you even make sense of all the beliefs out there? There are so many different things that people are believing and pulling from. But this is the important point. And I always tell people, like, if you get nothing else from what I'm saying or writing or anything on the subject, take this. There is a tie that functionally binds the worldviews of those millions of people. And here's what that tie is. They defer to the authority of themselves in terms of what is true about reality, what is good and bad and right and wrong, rather than a given religion or God. So as Christians with a biblical worldview, we should have God as our authority. Our authority about the nature of reality comes from outside of ourself. We look to God and we know about God, who he is, who we are, how we're to respond, all of these big worldview questions, because it's revealed in his inspired and authoritative word. So our authority is outside of ourselves. But for millions of people, that 88%, their authority for truth is the self. And when you start to look at everything you see around you through that filter, it all makes so much more sense. All these people are coming back to the authority of 
the self. Mm. And to go that all of that leads to the answer, the actual question that you're asking, why is that so compelling now that we've defined what it is? Well, the Bible tells us why that's so compelling, because every single one of us by our human nature wants to go our own way. All of us want to defer to the authority of ourself. We all are in rebellion against God. Yes, when we're saved, we're given a new nature, but we still struggle with sin. We still struggle with wanting to go our own way. So it just so happens that we're a worldview minority surrounded by this dominant majority that has a worldview in common that the Bible itself says, this is what you're going to struggle with. This is your human nature. It should be no surprise that this is compelling to us and that we get sucked in so easily. Oh man, that's really good. Yeah. What you're saying is none of us are neutral. You know, none of us, none of us. And, and not only that, like what you said, it ties in what you said earlier. All of us are being influenced by something. Uh, is it, is it, or is what we're being influenced by the Bible and the authority of God's word, or are we being influenced by the culture that, you know, it's seeking after its own self, after its own pleasure, after its, after its own way, like, or, or are we being persuaded more and more by and being captivated by the Bible and the word of God? I mean, um, it's a question. What we, I think it was, I can't remember what author, but um, basically he talks about, you know, what we're, what we're, yeah, what we're captivated by is what we value the most and those kind of things. I think, oh, James Smith, um, I think it is off the top of my head. I can't remember the book, but, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's true. Like what we, Jesus talks about in Luke 6, 45, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what we treasure comes and bubbles up out of our heart. And that's why Jesus talks so much about the treasure of our hearts, right? Because it's, it's what we treasure. He's to be our treasure. Um, and so if we ground our lives as the, in the parable of the, you know, the soils, right? The good soil, we're supposed to plant ourselves in the good soil, which is God's word. And which we know testifies of Christ. So, man, it's good stuff that you're saying. I mean, so it needs to be said. It needs to be said louder. You know, we have an authoritative word, um, and we need to stand on that word. Well, you know, I know that you write, you talk about progressive Christianity quite a bit, and uh, I really appreciate that. It's something that I'm hoping to do more myself, uh, talking about because it's such an issue out there, and people are becoming so uh, captivated by it. But uh, in your book, you contrast progressive Christianity with the historic Christian faith, and, and you conclude that progressive Christianity is ultimately a secular pressure coming from within the church. Can you explain you know, what progressive Christianity is and how you came to that conclusion? So if you ask 100 people what it means to be a progressive Christian, you'll get 100 different answers. It's one of those kinds of questions. Um, so I, I will give my own answer to that that I think fairly represents what I have seen dominate these kinds of conversations. And that is that progressive Christians, rather than looking to the Bible and seeing it as the inspired authoritative word of God with eternal truths that apply for all times, look at the Bible more as man's maybe best ideas over time, but that we're still learning, we're still evolving in our understanding of God, and that as time marches on, we're going to have some changes in views. When you view the Bible in that way, that it's not God's objective truth for all time, but that it really is just a product of man, and we're going to get some better ideas as we progress, you're going to end up with some very different views than what are taught in the Bible. Mm -hmm. 
And so at the end of the day, if the Bible is not God's inspired and authoritative word, and you're in the position of looking to it for what you personally think is helpful, what you personally think is true or not true, and you're picking and choosing from that because it's not God's word, but it's just a helpful tool. That is ultimately just another form of secularism. It's ultimately just another way of coming back to the authority of the self, to the authority of you being the arbiter of truth, being the one who's looking and saying, well, I think this is right. I think this is wrong. I think this or that. That's the heart of secularism. Like I said before, when it comes back to you as the ultimate authority for truth, that's just secularism. Progressive Christians have, you know, a greater appreciation for Jesus, maybe, or maybe a greater love for Jesus. However, they might be defining him, which is a whole other question and challenge. But ultimately, they're going to have views that very much line up with the rest of culture, because when you're picking and choosing from the Bible, and that's not your objective source of truth, then you're going to be very much going along with the cultural winds and you're going to go along with whatever popular consensus tells you. So it is yet another secular pressure for Bible-believing Christians. It's just that it comes within the church from people who call themselves Christians, but it's just secularism. Yeah, that's really good. As you're talking, I'm reminded of Jay Gresham Machen's uh, book, uh, Christianity and Liberalism. He said Christianity was a revealed religion and, you know, basically progressive, he would call it theological liberalism, is another religion entirely. You know, it's it goes back to what you were talking about earlier in the last question, your response to that about the authority of God's word. You know, theological liberalism has traditionally grounded itself in its feelings. So I feel this way, you know, and so that's what I believe. So my feelings, uh, we call that a theology from below instead of a theology from above. The theology from above is, you know, coming from God's word and the theology from below is placing, you know, our feelings in God's word basically on the same, like a railroad track, you know, kind of same level. And it's, it's sad. And and some people might hear that as saying, well, we're against emotions. And I mean, we have the book of Psalms. (laughs) You can't, the book of Psalms talks so much about our, our emotions and in a God word perspective, you know? And uh, so it's, it's tragic. I I just am reminded uh, also like, of B.B. Warfield and, you know, how he responded, um, you know, that great Princeton scholar, uh, I think it was 19th century off the top of my head. And, he, you know, he, he, he engaged the issues of the day, but he did it from the Bible. We just need to do the same today. You know, we have example after example uh, of answers, um, people that did that what they did, not just Gresham Machen, not just B.B. Warfield, but others. And it's always interesting to me in studying this, how they wanted to come to the Bible, like you said, but then they didn't believe the Bible. It's like, well, how does that make much sense? Like, why would you come to a book that you don't believe to then disprove it? Like, I think the, 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 the disconnect in logic there is like, it's always just alarming to me. I'm always just like, do, do you, do you see the, you see that? You see the the, the gap there, the, the difference. And people are like some people are like, yeah, I, I see that. Right. 
Yeah. I, I think it's so important what you said about feelings, just going back to that for a second, because, you know, a lot of times it's it, people think, well, so you're not allowed to have feelings about things, but, but that's not the point. I might, even as someone who seeks to have a biblical worldview, I might feel certain ways about things that I read in the Bible. Maybe I don't like what God says about something, or maybe I wish that God didn't have a, a, a perspective on things that, that I am seeing there. But if I'm going to go with God as my authority through his authoritative word, rather than my feelings, that means I'm going to accept that those might be my feelings, but I'm going to go with what he says as what's true objectively. And that's the difference. That's the difference between a culture that relies on the authority of the self and says, well, here's what I feel. Feelings are my ultimate guide. And so I'm going with that versus someone with a biblical worldview who might say this, that they have the same feeling. Even you might agree. You might say, I, I feel like that too. Maybe I feel like this about whatever it is, women in ministry or homosexuality, whatever it might be. Maybe I feel a certain way, but I'm going to assume my feelings are wrong about it because they are subjective. And I'm going to go with what God has said objectively is true. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really good. That's really good. You know, we're, we're seeing this conversation today about deconstruction and it, it, it really, to be honest, it really breaks my heart um, about what is happening with this topic and how people are abandoning the faith um, you know, it's popular to talk about deconstructing the faith. What is deconstructionism and why do you think it's so appealing and, and dangerous? Well, it's sort of become this trend, which is a strange thing when you're talking about people who are sort of deconverting in some way from their faith, that that could become trendy. But that is indeed what we're seeing. And this is another one of those terms that people will define in all kinds of ways. But generally speaking, if someone says, oh, I'm deconstructing, what they mean is that they are walking away from an acceptance of a the historic Christian faith and the Bible as God's word. They're are taking apart those pieces, in other words, deconstructing them. And in, instead of really looking at it from a perspective of, okay, well, what's true? Let me grab back those pieces, which would be sort of a, an honest truth-seeking way of reconstructing. Instead of that, they tend to, and I'm making generalizations here, but they tend to just pick up the pieces that they find helpful. That is a common word that you will hear when you're talking with progressive Christians, because usually that's what it means is that they're walking away from the historic Christian faith into some form of progressivism where they don't take the Bible to be God's word. And therefore now they're picking and choosing what they believe to be true. That's, that's sort of the heart of deconstruction, not for every person, but in general, that's what you see. And so this word helpful comes up all the time. If you read progressive books, they talk about what is helpful more so than they talk about what is true. But ultimately, when we look at what we think is helpful or not, that's a very subjective determination. That's the wrong question to ask about a worldview. You can come to any kind of conclusion you want about that, but you should want your beliefs to line up with reality. The question should always remain, is it true? what is true and how would I know what is true? So that's kind of what deconstruction is. And the reason that it's become so popular, so trendy is that people aren't content to just say, well, I'm deconstructing my faith and that's the end of the story, but they want to bring others with them. So it's more of a social movement. Even it's not just an individual thing. It is a movement to publicly announce on your Instagram or social, other social media to say, Hey, I'm deconstructing my faith. And here's 
what it looks like for me. And in, in my chapter in the book on this, I, I walk through how it's almost a predictable series of steps in the narrative to be like a reverse testimony. They'll talk about what the catalyst was. You know, what is it that made me originally say, hey, I can no longer believe that, you know, that if I don't hate LGBTQ people, I'm going to hell. Like you'll hear people say stuff like that, but that's never, of course, what the Bible claims. But you'll hear these catalysts that people are saying, this is what's making me go away from the faith. Then they provide an avalanche of questions, as I call it, which is here are all the unanswered questions that I had and no one can answer them because there are no good answers available. And then it ends with the happy ending of I'm free now. I, I deconstructed my faith and now I'm picking up the pieces that that really make sense to me. And it's a better, happier, more peaceful um, just greater place to be. That's kind of the predictable narrative that you hear. And so it's becoming sort of trendy to do this. If you're in that place of doubt and you're kind of walking away from the faith that you had, you're going to share it with others and you're going to hope that you're bringing them along too. And I would say that the underlying reason why people want to do this, and I'm getting a little psychological and you know, <laughs> imputing some motivation here, but I think that it's not just because they're saying Christianity is not true, but because they believe now that Christianity is actually harmful. So if you think something is harmful, if you believe it's harmful to be a Christian, you're going to be motivated to try to get people out of it. Not just because you think it's harmful to them, but you think they're harming others with their beliefs. So I think that's the underlying motivation that people really do have for sharing their deconstruction process in the hopes others will follow. Not that they think it's untrue or only that they think it's untrue, but they think it's harmful. Well, we can't, we can't help but share what we love. And what we value, like we talked about earlier. And so it's not surprising then that they want to share what they treasure, what they value. Um, I, I remember, I always remember back in, this is probably, uh, this is before 2000, I think it was. And I had a friend come back from Bible college and he, he was very, very sharp. I mean, he was, he, he was definitely above average intelligence and he, he knew his stuff. We were taught systematic theology and in our youth group, uh, Sunday school, uh, our pastor preached expository sermons to us every week in high school, which if you're a youth pastor, do that. Just just go ahead and do it. Okay. Uh, kids need it. Uh, you're, you know, whatever is trendy, just forget it. Just go preach the Bible and teach the kids. Theology. Anyways, but he came back from Bible college. And like you're saying, this is before deconstruction was even a thing, but, you know, maybe around the time of the emergent church. And, you know, he, he said, Dave, I have questions. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. okay, that's good. You have questions. Okay. What, what's up? And uh, he kept coming back. And, you know, from every time he came back, eventually he didn't come back. Um, but his questions became more and more hostile really to the Christian faith. Um, and it always, that's always stuck with me because, you know, like you're, you're talked about questions and the questions that we ask, um, they reveal something about our conviction. Um, and I've thought about that a lot or since that time, you know, and not only, not only do they reveal our convictions, but they, we have to be careful about how we ask questions. Um, you know, we, we as Christians ask questions of the biblical text because we believe the biblical text. Um, people that don't believe the biblical text come and ask questions for myriad of reasons. Um, they, they maybe have a question about what the text means, what a subject means, so on and so forth. 
But we come to the Bible and we ask questions because we believe the Bible. We believe that it's true and that it has the words of life, right? And um, the deconstruction thing, I think, is is it goes back to why are you, we have to ask, why are you asking a question? And we have to get into people and we have to take a what we call a biblical counseling approach. We have to dig in and we have to really ask more questions about why, what is the issue here? Why are you asking the question? And if you, if we see a friend like that, I would, in our church, I, I would say it's incumbent upon you as a church member to go, to go and to talk to that person and, and, and do tell your pastor too. If you hear about that, um, I would just, I would just say, tell your pastor, there's nothing, you're not tattling on your past. You're not tattling on that person. You're actually doing the most loving thing. Uh, so that your pastor can follow up with them too and find out what's happening. And, um, you know, we, I think if we take this a better approach to it, I think that we can, you know, in a whole person perspective, I think we can really address this in a better way. But it's good. That takes work. And it it takes admitting that we don't have to have cookie cutter, you know, answers as well, you know, to just, oh, well, here's 50 ways for you to be a better person. And, you know, to, to do that and, and really tailor our answers to people and to their, to their hurt and their pain. And, um, cause that's really what they want. They want to be heard. They want to be known. They want to be cared about and, and we have the better answers. So we don't have to be afraid. Like I, I know I, that's one thing I know, you know, in the book, you, you give the answers, you don't just fluff it off, you know, and pretend that these aren't difficult things. You're, you're providing real solutions. And that's what I really appreciate about this book is you're giving real answers, not just like tried answers, but like actual answers. So anyway, well, that's, that's what I hope to do. And yeah, you're right. I mean, I think we have to just welcome whatever questions have people have, because you know, the truth has nothing to fear. I think the only Christians who don't want to hear questions are the ones who are scared of them because they don't know how to answer them. And sometimes people are afraid if, you know, if I ask questions, what am I going to find out? Christian Christianity is all I've ever known. And, you know, I just kind of want to like close my eyes, but I just would encourage people. You don't want to believe something that's not true, right? You only want to believe what's true about reality. So let's figure out what is true about reality. Let's ask those questions. You have nothing to fear. And, and I, and I would say, you don't have to ask the questions coming into it, assuming that the Bible is, is true. I think that you ask the questions going into it that you want to discover what's true, but not going into it, assuming the Bible's false or true that you can come into it and say, well, how would I know? What are the questions that I would ask to understand the reliability of the Bible? Those are totally fair and good questions that I think need to be asked and that, that people need to pursue. So, and I, and I think you're right also of getting down to that deeper level, when you say, you know, ask someone, why are, you know, are you asking this question? If I'm understanding you, right, you're not saying that in the sense of like, Hey, why are you asking a question? You're, you're implying, no, let's get into, well, is there a question below the question? You know, are you asking, you know, how, how is this bad thing happening? Because maybe you're actually questioning whether or not God exists in the first place. So getting down to that deeper level, I think is so important. And that's one of the things that I do talk about in the book with respect to helping other people, or even yourself as you're working through doubts. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what biblical counseling does. It digs into the issue. It doesn't just skim the surface. It asks the question, like, what's happening here that's causing this particular subject? You know, just to your point, like, and and that kind of question communicates care. Like, 
So somebody asked me today, hey, I need prayer. They said, I'm, I'm lonely and I'm struggling. So I would ask, why are you lonely? You know, just to follow the progression, like you would have, you would be inquisitive. You would ask a question and this, these just kind of show care and like, and, and that you want to be there for the person. But, you know, we could talk a lot about that, but uh, <laughs> what, uh, what risk does uh, cancel culture pose to today's Christian and how should, uh, how should Christians respond to this? Well, a lot of times Christians think, oh, cancel culture. That's what happens to big celebrities if they make a misstep. You know, this, this is when the mob goes after them and they're in all the headlines and stuff. And Christians don't realize that actually that kind of mentality and seeing what's happening to people on big stages, that affects a lot of times what we're willing to stick our neck out for because we perceive that that's going to happen in our personal lives. And indeed, I hear many, many stories from people who have been cut off from their family members. They've been cut off by friends. They've been cut off from their jobs. Christians are being so-called canceled for speaking what they believe to be true in these kinds of contexts. And so it's not just a cancel culture thing about what's out there on a big stage. It's also happening in individuals' lives. And the risk of this is that Christians start thinking that we should just be quiet because we must be doing something wrong if people are upset about it. But we've got to remember that we are accountable for sharing truth in a gracious and loving way, but still sharing the truth. And no matter how kind and gracious you are, when you share truth, there will be people who find it offensive. Mm. And when people find it offensive and they hate you for it, make sure that they hate the message and not you because you're being the jerk. But if they hate you because they hate the message, that's on them. It's not on you. We're not accountable for how someone receives truth. We are accountable for speaking the truth and we are accountable for the way in which we share the truth, but we are not accountable for how it's received. So as Christians, we can't succumb to this quieting that cancel culture wants to put upon us. We have to remember that we still have to be obedient to what God has called us to do, to go out and make disciples of all nations. And if we are going to disciple people, you're going to share truth with them. They're not going to like it. And you just have to remember that you're still called to it, whether people like it or not. I wish I could put like, when you're talking, I'm thinking, I wish there was a way that you could put fire emojis on the screen. <laughs> Cause like, I'm like, that's a fire, that's fire emoji right there. Fire emoji, fire emoji, fire emoji. No, that's, that's good. You know, we, we should pray for, we should pray for boldness, you know, but we should pray for a heart that longs to serve people, you know, and love. And as we do that, I, we'll, we'll actually be I mean, when we understand what the Holy Spirit wants to do, we're, you know, we're dwelt by the Spirit and the Spirit wants to take the truth and he wants to point us to Christ, you know, from the Bible. And, and, you know, the, the apostles were bold because they went out into a hostile culture, much like ours today with the, with the truth. And we have, we need to pray for boldness, but we also need to pray that we would speak the truth and love as the Bible you know, talks about it and not be, the, not be the, um, not be that person, that guy, you know, that the jerk, as you said, you know, and, and, and I'm concerned about that too, because, you know, people today, I think in some quarters of evangelicalism, even it's, it's cool. It's hit to speak, speak the truth, but really what we're talking about is speaking your truth. You know, we're not talking about the truth, the Bible's truth, because if we're speaking the truth, we're supposed to speak it in love. So we can even speak my truth that is that under the banner of tr 
the truth, the Bible. Um, but the the Bible wouldn't recognize wouldn't recognize we we want to lambat what we really want to do is we want to lambast people with our opinions um and i would say i would say lovingly that especially if you're if you're doing that please stop (laughs) please like it's not it's not helpful um you know there are some christians unfortunately that think using flowery language on social media it'll get you all the attention every all day long but is it faithful to scripture is it faithful to christ is it faithful to the imperatives of scripture um i mean you go and look at all the new testament epistles they all have something to say about it, almost every single one of them about our speech or our conduct you know and it's it's a reflection of who who we belong to you know and um it should it should give it gives me pause it should give us all pause um it's a convicting thing it's meant to be convicting because we like you said mentioned earlier we have indwelling sin and we're gonna we're gonna do that we're we're gonna we're gonna go there and we're gonna cause harm and that's why we that's why we we need one another we need the local church we need to speak the truth and love to one another and we don't need to, we can speak the truth in a compelling way, in a wonderful way. We can, you know, I, I joke with people about, you know, posting truth bombs and, you know, fire fire sauce and, you know, have fun with it. But, you know, it still has to, at the end of the day, it still has to be truthful and it has to be loving and it has to be seasoned with grace. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with having fun as you do it and saying it in a compelling way, but it better be truthful and it better be loving. And it better equip and build up other people. Otherwise, you know, it's it's not helpful. That's right. And I think, you know, if more Christians were reading their Bible rather than just following other people who supposedly read their Bibles, we wouldn't be in a lot of this mess because then every Christian would be equipped to discern what they're hearing from someone else. Because a lot of times, you know, you're, you're saying, you know, please stop to the people who are just kind of putting off their own opinions and doing it in these kinds of ways. But some of those people don't even know that what they're talking about is not consistent with what the Bible teaches. So that's a whole other form of danger here. And so every Christian needs to be reading the Bible regularly, understanding what the Bible says, because you should be testing all things, not just the things that are not labeled Christian. You must be testing all things. Yeah. So good. But what encouragement would you offer to Christians who feel discouraged by the ongoing cultural wars? Are there ways in which we can use the chaotic culture of today as an opportunity to witness to non-Christians? Well, I definitely think so. I think that, first of all, it is normal if you are a Christ follower to look at what's happening in culture and grieve the sin that we see, that everything that's going on around us grieve our own sin. Also, it's not just pointing fingers at everyone else. We should be grieving sin in all of its forms, and there's certainly a lot that's happening in culture um, to look around and feel sad about. And, And I think that's okay. That's normal. That's healthy. If you don't feel sad about what you see in culture and oftentimes what you see in yourself, again, then maybe there's a problem um, in your spiritual life. But that said, we don't want to stay there. We don't want to get stuck in grief, sadness, anger, all these kinds of responses. I think that as we see the culture continue to decline in a lot of ways and to move away from a Christian worldview or even just values that were consistent with it, I, I think that we need to see it as an opportunity. And we can get really down and we can feel really discouraged if we don't see it 
as an opportunity. This is our opportunity to do exactly what Jesus called us to. This is our opportunity to shine light where it is so desperately needed in the midst of darkness. And we shouldn't be surprised by anything that we're seeing today because Jesus himself said the world will hate you. It hated Jesus first, therefore it will hate us. If the the world would love you, then you would be of the world. You're not. And so that's why the world hates you, right? That's my my paraphrase here. I'm not good at actually memorizing the word for word, but that's what Jesus is saying. He said, expect this. This is this is what you should be expect to be in a minority. So nothing should be shocking here. We should accept that this is exactly what Jesus said and that we are still called to be salt and light. We're not called to be salt and light to a culture that's already lit and preserved. We are called to be that in a culture that needs it because it is dark and it is unpreserved. So Mm -hmm. this is an opportunity for us today. Don't be discouraged. Feel fired up at the opportunity that presents itself. Amen, sister, and say it louder for the people in the back, please. (laughs) (laughs) You know, for real, for real. Well, you know, Natasha, where can people go to find out more about you uh, on social media or otherwise? Tell us a bit about your podcast and uh, what you're trying to do with that. Yeah, so my website is natashacrane.com and it's spelled C-R-A-I-N, not like the bird. I always have to say that because people will always Google with the, the A-N-E there. And uh, the podcast is called the Natasha Crane Podcast. And uh, you can find out about it at the site also. And all of my books are available on Amazon and wherever else books are sold that people get them. Christian Book is another great outlet if you're trying to avoid Amazon, as I know people increasingly are. So Christian Book has all of them too. Yeah, hilariously, I, I some people are like, well, can you please post the Amazon link to it? I'm like, I'm posting the Westminster book link uh, <laughs> because I get told, please stop using Amazon from our listeners and those who access our website. So, you know, I try, I try to, you know, but some people are like, I just want to buy it. I'm like, here's a link. Okay, there you go. So <laughs> go search whatever, it. Whatever, yes. you know. You know, I always say at the end of these, there's a lot that we could talk about. I mean, she's some of these, you know, you could spend a whole season talking about some of these questions and uh, but really have enjoyed this. Can you give us a few takeaways uh, as we wrap it up, Natasha? Yeah, I guess that the biggest takeaway would be that we are, if you have a biblical worldview, we are in a small minority and we are at fundamental odds with culture because of a very specific factor. And that is the factor of the authority of the self being the ongoing uh, view of reality by people. When you have a culture around you that all believes that I'm the one who's going to decide what's true you're going to be at odds with that culture because you believe that what God says is true, regardless of those feelings. So we are fundamentally at odds with the culture around us. These are not small differences. If you think we only have small differences with culture, then you haven't really processed what's going on in culture. So I hope that that's a helpful framework for people to start thinking about that with that's the authority of the self versus the authority of God. And then say much more about that, obviously in the book, in terms of how that works its way out for all of these pressures. Really, really good, really good. Well, Natasha, we we have really, I've really enjoyed the conversation today. Thank you so much for your time, guys. Uh, Natasha's book, I'll put it up again, since I was asked to do that for you guys. The book is Faithfully Different: Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Age. We've been talking with Natasha Crane. Natasha, thank you for your great work in this book and that you're doing uh, to serve the church and and God's people. So God bless you. Thank you so much, and thank you for everything you're doing as well. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.